Father God, as we come to uh, the book of Zephaniah, uh, we pray that you would teach us and instruct us and show us the glory and wonder that is your son Jesus, that we might respond in repentance and faith. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. Uh, Brooms. We all have one, don't we? We all know what to do with a broom. We know what they're for. Okay. Did you know that God, God has and God uses a broom? A broom, and in verse 12 of Zephaniah, I hope you have it open now, lamps, a broom and a lamp. God uses both on a day of judgment that is terrible. Let's look at the text. Verse 1, let's ask first, who is Zephaniah? The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. The name Hezekiah should strike us. It's unusual. Probably the king of, uh, uh, an is- uh, king of Israel. Uh, good king or bad king, Hezekiah? Unreal king. In fact, 2 Kings 18.5 says that he trusted the Lord and that there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah. Either before him or after. That's a big rap, isn't it? And so the word of the Lord comes to Zephaniah, who is a descendant of Hezekiah, and that means Zephaniah has royal blood in his veins. And the timing of this ministry is at the beginning of King Josiah's reign, who turns out to be a good king. But King Josiah follows a very ordinary king, a king Uh, that reigned over long, evil, dark days. And his name was Manasseh. And what is Zephaniah's message? Verse 2. He gets the broom out. Do you see it in verse 2? I'll sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I'll sweep away both man, humans, and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble when I destroy all of mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Holy dooly. Welcome to church. Hope you're warm and comfortable. This is everything and everyone. And I wonder if you thought as I read that and as you heard Don read it, did it, did it remind you of anything? Did it, maybe the flood. In Genesis 6, verse 7, uh, it says that I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. So imagine you're listening to Zephaniah preach this in the streets of Judah, and you're going, why is he talking about the flood right now? What is he talking about? This guy's back in the days of Noah. But notice the scope is even bigger than Noah. You thought the scope of Noah was, was enormous. This is even bigger. How do we know? Because, well, fish. Fish are included. That's what's striking about verse, uh, verses 2 and 3. Fish are included. Sin affects all of creation. And so you can imagine them hearing this uh, and remembering the flood story. And surely they'd be thinking, wow, God promised He delivered on this promise before in the days of Noah. Then surely this is bigger. He'll deliver on this promise as well. And so God declares, verse 2, I will sweep. Verse 3, I will sweep. 
verse 3b, I will sweep. Can you picture God with a big broomstick, with a big broom head on the end of it, and he intends to use it? Which brings us to the next picture, verse 4. I wonder as we come to this next picture, what, what do you think is being evoked here? It's a little, little more subtle for us, but I don't think the listeners uh, would have missed it at all. He says, verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal. And on he goes. In the Exodus, how does God redeem Israel? Doesn't he say that I'm going to stretch out my hand against the Egyptians? In Exodus 6, he says to Moses, I'm going to redeem you and Israel. I'm going to redeem you with a mighty outstretched arm. He says, I will, in chapter 3, verse 20 of Exodus, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform against them. Now God's hand being stretched out is used by prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, language used to speak of God's judgment against everyone else. But here, it's judgment on Judah, God's own people. And Judah is pretty much all that's left of Israel at this point of time. Assyria put pay to that. Ten tribes of Israel gone. And so we might be asking, well, why? Why is this judgment coming? Well, this is where we find out what Zephaniah's audience is like. Here comes the why. It turns out they're just like the other nations. Yet they're so like the other nations, you can't tell the difference anymore between God's people and the rest. So verse 4, Judah, they worship the false god Baal. In verse 5, they're worshipping the stars. In verse 5 again, it says they bow down and swear by the Lord and they're swearing by Molech. And if we know Molech, we know that that involved, uh, worship of that god involved killing babies, sacrificing them. And so the people of Judah are taking a bet each way. Verse 6 says that they disregard God altogether. They turn their back from following the Lord. They actually don't seek him or inquire of him. And so maybe as we read that, maybe we're actually sitting there going, well, thank goodness that was a long time ago and that's not us. But that might be a mistake. Are we guilty of idolatry? Our own kind of idolatry. Uh, what do we make of our sporting stars and our, our celebrities? Too much. We spend more time gathering around the TV each night, giving that idiot box our undivided attention. Substantially more time than any time we give God. Maybe we're guilty of engaging in the worship of multiple gods that take a different kind of form. Maybe it's the God of money or the God of the weather radar. Another example, of course, is uh, our liberal Bible colleges and what we call liberal clergy. Uh, some who want to so emphasise tolerance and inclusion at any cost. You can spend whole semesters at these colleges studying the similarities between Islam and Christianity, 
And the conclusion you're invited to come to is that all belong apparently to the family of God. You can get degrees in this rubbish. Because apparently they're all the same. The differences are apparently really small. In fact, they're so small you can't tell the difference anymore. Well, that sounds like Judah, doesn't it? In truth, it's more like a chasm. That's how big the difference is. And let's not forget the astrologers, verse 5. I read that and remember my mum. If the Zodiac lady turned up on the TV, mum would run across the room and turn her off and scowl and talk about what rubbish it was or the newspaper. If we wanted to wind mum up, we'd find the stars in the newspaper. Here's your star sign today, mum. And she'd oh, that's rubbish. Get rid of it. And she was, of course, right. And Molech. Well, you might be sitting there going, well, thank goodness we haven't sacrificed any children. I mean, how can Judah worship the Lord and a false god that apparently demands the burning of young children? That is incompatible. That just sounds absurd and extreme. But this is what Judah has become, just like the other nations. And of course, as we think about that, I sat there and thought, well, thank goodness we're not like that. But wait a second. We only need to look no further than the Royal Commission to be reminded that we are far too... There are far too many of our children that have been sacrificed. And far too many have turned a blind eye. And so on the surface, these charges, they sound extreme and even remote from us. But on reflection, the Anglican communion is nowhere near far enough away from these charges. It's so bad that parts of our Anglican communion, you can't even tell the difference anymore between the world and its values and uh, what we believe. Verse 6, the charges continue. Those who turn back from following the Lord, they neither seek the Lord, they don't even inquire of him. All right, this is just passive rejection, isn't it? This is just the sin of not turning up. This is the sin of just, no, I'm not going to outrightly bow down to other gods and I'm not going to kill babies. This is just the silent rejection. As I slowly and quietly slip away, I'm going to just fold my arms and find other things to do that preoccupy my time. Verse 12b says they're like complacent, lazy winemakers that do nothing. And wine left too long on its dregs spoils and becomes just thick and syrupy and not enjoyable at all. And so the description of the people of Judah here is that they're complacent and apathetic and indifferent and lazy and uncommitted. They're half-hearted, who-cares people. They're the kind of people that think, verse 12c, they think the Lord will do nothing. He won't do anything. He's not going to do anything good or bad. And so they think God shares their indifferent attitude. And this is, again, liberal theology right here. The idea that God is love, that anything goes. The judgment, they'll say, is so Old Testament. Judgment, God's wrath and anger is so last century. Don't worry about it. The Lord's going to do nothing. Make no mistake. Now, in the words of Zephaniah, you can know that God is absolutely filthy with Judah. 
And so again, imagine the original hearers, imagine being a face in the crowd, Zephaniah's preaching, and God promised the flood and he delivered, and God promised to stretch out his hand against his enemies in Egypt and he delivered, and now Zephaniah is telling Judah, you're next. Verse 7 and 8, be silent before the Lord, sovereign Lord, for the day the Lord is near, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice he has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who clad in foreigners' clothes. And on it goes. This is another picture uh, that the listeners are yet to see, but they will soon enough experience. The verses 7 and 8 are written in history. You can find it fulfilled in Jeremiah 39. It's a time when the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, not of animals, but of people who have offended him. When Babylon is invited, their Babylon is consecrated. They're set apart as instruments of judgment. And so when Jerusalem falls, they will kill the king's sons in front of him, verse 7, and then they'll burn the king's eyes out. It'll be the last thing the king sees. That Again, Jeremiah 39, it's all there. And it's the punishment here, verses 7 and 8. Verse 9, worshippers of false gods are punished. Verse 10, it's a day of wailing and crying and mourning over the dead throughout Jerusalem. You can read about that in the book of Lamentations. That's full of it. It's a day when Babylon burns the city and plunders and demolishes it, verse 13 where Jerusalem is destroyed and those left going to exile. And you can be sure, verse 12, it's all at God's hand. As he, verse 12, as he searches with lamps, as he looks for the complacent, here is God getting his broom out. God promised judgment in the book of Zephaniah and God has delivered it. And the prophecy they hear at this time becomes their history. So again, just like the flood of judgment on humanity, history, just like the exodus and judgment on Egypt, etched in history, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile, Zephaniah says, Judah, here is your future. And now we read it today and go, here is, here is history. Because this has happened. I mean, Hollywood disaster movies have nothing on this, do they? Verse 18, notice, silver and gold will not save them on the day of the Lord's wrath, in the fire of his jealousy. And again, why is this terrible day going to happen? Why? Verse 17 tells us it's because of sin. Because they have sinned against the Lord. It's because of wickedness. It's because people think that sin doesn't matter and God doesn't matter and that God doesn't care. You can be sure today, this morning, God hates sin. And that there is still a day to come. A day we know to be called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord that you can read about in the Old Testament and as well in the New Testament. A day when God is going to come along with his broom and his lantern and sweep the place out. 
a day when he will take the broom to places like London and Beijing and Tokyo and uh, Brisbane and Tamworth and Inverell. And all that will be left will be rubble. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for the day of the Lord? God has done, exercised, he's meted out his judgment before. But this next time, it really will be comprehensive and universal. That's what we see in Zephaniah. It's frightening. Now, that, has that grabbed you? Because you need to hear the next part. Don't not hear this next bit. Whilst the wrath of God is frightening, there is comfort in this book of Zephaniah. Because Zephaniah's name means the one whom the Lord gives shelter. And we know this side of the cross. We know who it is in whom we find shelter. Words of warning like this have us clamour, have us run to find shelter. And of course, if our faith is in Jesus, the New Testament tells us that God's wrath, his terrible wrath, has been poured out already on Christ, our sin bearer. Jesus experienced for us a day of distress, a day of anguish, a day of ruin and blackness and darkness and gloom. Jesus has experienced this day that we read about here, a day when it was his blood poured out, a day uh, where he was spat on, where he was mocked and whipped and cut and bloodied and beaten and speared and hung as a criminal with nails in the flesh and wood where he suffocated and he died. A day when Jesus died your death for your sin so you wouldn't have to. Jesus died for you. He bore this judgment for you. In that moment on the cross, he gave up everything for you, he bore God's terrible day of wrath for you so that this terrible day does not have to be your future or my future or our future. When we see, when we read through the book of Zephaniah and read about God's, the reality of God's terrible judgment, can you also see this morning the magnitude of God's amazing love for you? That he is the giving Lord. That he has given us everything that we need. That he has never failed us. That he will never fail us. That we lack nothing if we have Jesus. Jesus is the shelter that prepares us for the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, we... We read about in 2 Peter chapter 3, the passage that Peter read out for us. The passage that reminds us of a day of terrible judgment that is still to come. A day that is also good 
Because it'll be a day when sin and evil and death are reckoned. That will be a good day, a necessary step as the new creation is established. The good news is that we cannot and we will not bring our brokenness with us on that day. That's how good the new creation will be. And so God will reckon with sin and death and evil, such as his goodness. Notice it follows the enormous far-reaching patience of God, which means salvation in verse 9 and 15 of 2 Peter 3. But notice too, there's something else to see. Did you hear as the gospel was read, Luke 15, what did the woman have? The woman had... She had a broom. And she had a lamp. And she went looking for the coin, didn't she? With a lamp and a broom. She sweeps and sweeps until she finds that one last coin. And we know that our Lord is the one that seeks and seeks and seeks and searches and searches and looks for the lost. And when the lost is found... He rejoices over the one sinner who repents. Such is his great love. This is is Luke 15, isn't it? And in Luke 15, we see the lamp and the, the broom coming out. And so I want to say to you, his judgment and his love are two sides of the same coin. God's judgment sounds severe in Zephaniah. But this side of the cross, as we see Jesus, the sin bearer, experience God's judgment in our place, that which was once lost can now be found. God's mercy is a severe mercy. And we see that shining brightly at the cross. If God is not a God of judgment, then Jesus died for nothing. He died in vain. But we know that that is not true. God is a God of judgment. And there on the cross, he expressed his great love for the world that has rebelled against him. And so following to Peter, what do we do? Let us find shelter in Jesus. Let us live Holy lives, godly lives, as we look forward to the day of God. Let us look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Let us make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with God. Let us be on our guards, lest we be carried away by the mistakes of others. That's in 2 Peter as well. But let us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. For to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen.